Go back with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 11, and let's resume our study there. Uh, I'm going to read you to the, uh, the first two, well, verses 11 and 12. And um, we looked at verse 11 last week. We'll look at verse 12 this week and hopefully be able to get through verse 12. Um, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Uh, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, guys, remember last week we talked about uh, this this fall, this stumble on the part of Israel. It's not a permanent one. Um, it's it's one that was um, a permitted, uh, orchestrated, used by God to bring Gentiles in, and um, there was a there's a purpose behind it. And then I said. Um, um, that purpose is that Gentiles might live such a way that um, Israel will one day envy uh, what we have and long for it, and um, we would find a, a rich, fertile field for evangelism among Jews. Now we come to verse 12, and it says, if, uh, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more all will, will their full inclusion mean? Now, guys, let me do something real quick, and then we'll jump into the text. But um, it, it, the translation that I'm using, it talks about full inclusion. Uh, most of your translations will have the word fullness. Uh, and one of the questions that seems to be on the fronts of a lot of people's mind who are interested in this subject is, what does that mean? Full inclusion. Now, guys, we're going to get to that, but we're not going to get to it tonight. And, and I, I'm, I'm pretty much going to... Um, not address that until we come to look at verse 26, because that's where the controversy really comes in. Uh, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's where it's we're going to have to deal with that issue in fullness uh, or in completion, but we won't do it tonight. Uh, we'll we'll get to it, but it'll probably be May. Um, so just hang with me. Um, guys, the text itself is fairly easy to explain. There's nothing, uh, you know, secretive about it. There's some rich lessons in it, which is where I want to spend our time is the lessons in the text. But it is simply saying, if the failure of Israel meant blessings for, for Gentiles, how much more or how much greater then will be those blessings when Israel, um, believes the gospel in, in great numbers or greater numbers? That's that's all. That's pretty much what you have there. If if this one trespass has led to the inclusion of the Gentiles, and how much uh, blessing that has been for Gentiles, that would be us. How much greater will the riches be when Israel is brought in in her fullness? That's what verse twelve is. Now let me point out a, one thing, and then I want to show you some lessons, and we're done. Um, it says in verse twelve that Gentile Christians have received riches. That is, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. It says there that as a result of Israel's failure, that Gentiles have been the benefactor of some riches. That is, Gentile Christians. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, do you feel enriched? Um... Do you glory in those riches that Paul has in mind here? 
You know, we looked at verse uh, 11 last week that talks about um, that the Gentile behavior is one day going to make Israel jealous. And I, and I asked you last week, is, what, what is it there about your life that makes anybody desire or envy what you've got? And, and we pretty much came to the conclusion there ain't much. But what I'm suggesting tonight is that one of the reasons that nobody does envy uh, what we've got is because we don't particularly act like we're greatly enriched in the first place. Do you as a believer feel like you've been enriched? Do you enjoy these great riches that you that are yours? Well, riches? Well, what in the heck are you talking about, Jimmy? Well, that's what I want to mention. Just a couple of those riches, um, which were we to be more mindful of, who knows? It might change the way we, we operate. I want to mention two. Two riches. There's more than two. Far more. But I'm just going to take your time over two. Number one, forgiveness. Um, the, the, the great benefit being the quietude of one's conscience. You know, guys, um, every year from time to time, I get some dear woman who comes to me and her conscience has been smitten for whatever reason over an act um, in her past. And most frequently that act is an abortion. I usually hear one or two of those a year. Um, now that's a dreadful thing. It's a, it's a horrible thing. I'm sorry it happened. I'm sorry you, I'm sorry you did that. I'm sorry you experienced that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It, I'm not trying in any way to make it small, big, or good. But I'm saying this. Do you understand that even something of that magnitude is forgiven? What if you're not a Christian and, you, and you're troubled by that event and nobody can tell you that you're forgiven? As bad as that event was, and I'm not trying to minimize it at all, I'm saying to you, as a believer, it is forgiven. Do you consider that a riches? Does the quietude of your conscience in the face of your own personal moral failure, does, does forgiveness count to you as a rich? It seems to me that it ought to. That in the face of my own moral failings, God in His grace has spoken forgiveness to me. Um, is that something that we're really mindful of enjoying? Um, well, it ought to be. The conscience that has been quieted by a gospel of grace. And that's something that the world doesn't possess, ladies and gentlemen. That's a rich. That's a, one of the riches of being, of belonging to the Lord Jesus. Here's, here's the second one that I want to mention to you. Um, dignity. Worth. Value. You know where that comes from, ladies and gentlemen? 
it's um you probably heard of this word um the imago dei you ever heard of that <laughs> well you need to if you never heard of the imago dei ladies and gentlemen you need to be you need to count that one of your greatest riches it's simply a Latin phrase that means the image of God. That you're created in the image of God. That one of the things that we have to enjoy and to um, consider a great riches is the fact that because we are God bearer, that is, we're bearers of the image of God, there is a certain dignity, a certain worth, a certain value that is not enjoyed by anybody but those who understand that they're created with a mago day. Pressed upon them. Let me tell you a story. I heard another preacher tell this story, and, and it, it illustrates the point. Um, he had a friend who was a, um, a resident. He was a med student, graduate med school. He was in his residency. And um, he was doing his residency in a teaching hospital. And um, one of the, the patients that came in was a woman who had, among other things, was dealing with depression. And so, you know, kind of like house the, the, the team of them were getting together and trying to figure out how to deal with the patient, you know. And, and um, this guy says, well, I've got a suggestion as to how we might be able to help this woman without drugs. I mean, we, we don't need to give her, we might need to give her some drugs. But there's a lot of drugs that we don't have to give her if we'll just tell her that she has dignity and she has worth and she has value. And when he said that, of course, this young man was a Christian, um, the other residents kind of snickered, and the, the doctor that was in charge said, how do you know that? Um, he went on to say, we're scientists here, and science says that we're, yes, we're more complex, but we have no scientific basis to suggest dignity or value. Don't push your quasi-religious views into science. And ladies and gentlemen, he is right. Apart from the understanding that you are made in the image of God, you are more complex than other organisms on the face of the planet, but you have no more value, no more dignity, no more worth than, in fact, Bertrand Russell put it this way. Well, let me put Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., remember him, the great Supreme Court justice? He said, we have no more significance than a baboon or a grain of sand. We die off just like everybody else. Bertrand Russell said, we are the product of causes that had no provision, prevision of the end that they were achieving. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are the accidental collocation of atoms, you have no worth. You're more complex than other organisms, but there is no dignity, no value, no, no particular intrinsic value in you. Don't bring those quasi-religious views into the scientific office. Guys, do you know the name Peter Singer? You know that name? He's the most influential philosopher in America today. He is the head of some department at Princeton. And Peter Singer, among other things, is advocating that every time that you have a baby, and I forget exactly the term period, but you are to be given, it may be a week or it may be a month or it may be nine months. I forget which is the time. But you have a, you have a time period to determine whether this is something that's valuable to, to you and, um, and you can kill it. That is, if you decide after, in, the, after, in this time period, and I forget what the probation period is, let's just call it a week. 
But at the end of that week, if you don't think this is a little thing that you got here is, is uh, got any value, you can kill it with impunity. And ladies and gentlemen, there are groups all over America that are furious with Peter Singer. And you know why they're furious with Peter Singer? Because he's right! If you are not the bearer of the image of God, what possible worth is there in you? The psychologists tell us how, how valuable we are. And then the philosophers go in and tell us there's absolutely no basis for that assessment. G.K. Chesterton, and, and, and I think it's in his book, Orthodoxy, but I tried to read Orthodoxy, and I'm telling you, it would, I, I just, I'm not man enough. It, it just, but uh, Chesterton said, we go to the office of the pol- uh, politicians who tell us that all war is a waste of life. Then we go to the office of the philosophers who tell us that all of life is a waste of time. We go to the political science instructor and he tells us that the natives are being treated like beasts. And then we go to the biology class where we, where we are told we are beasts. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, how inconsistent the non-Christian world is about your, your whole sense of dignity and worth and value? If you are the accidental collocation of atoms and there's no prevision of the end that you're going to achieve, you are worthless. And the next time you have a baby and you don't like what you got, just go ahead and kill the thing. He's right, ladies and gentlemen. One of the riches that we enjoy is that we have discovered that we're the bearers of the image of God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings a sense of dignity, a sense of worth, a sense of value, that apart from it, it disappears. Because we get killed off and off just like the baboons. You see, guys, what I'm saying is the non-Christian world says, oh, we need to... um, we need to protect the social, the, uh, the uh, individual rights of the, of, the, of the masses. Why? Don't you believe in the um, um, survival of the fittest? Why would you protect their rights? They are in, they're, they're internally inconsistent. The only people, ladies and gentlemen, that ought to be fighting for human rights is us. We're the ones who should not stand for an abuse of a human right. Because we know that every one of you, whether you believe it or not, you have impressed upon you the Imago Dei. You're an image bearer. It ought to change the way we treat each other too, I think. But but ultimately, guys, I'm saying, do you live like you have been the recipient of some riches? Well, first of all, if you've ever faced your sin and then been told you're forgiven, the most prized possession that the Christian has is forgiveness. And then, ladies and gentlemen, you do have dignity, you do have worth because you're created in the image of God. Do you live like that? Do you live like somebody who's received riches? Now, we got to move on, but um, 
Um, I, I said to you last week, I'm just going to say this in passing real quickly, but Paul is functioning as a prophet here. I told you that he's primarily known as a teacher, but he's functioning as a prophet. As he says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He's pointing to something that we'll discuss later, but he's serving as a prophet. Now, let me, let me, let me try to wrap this up with three quick lessons that I think you can draw from the text. First of all, um, if that is, if Paul is pointing to something that's going to bring even greater riches at the full inclusion of, of Israel, how ought we, what ought to be our attitude towards Jews individually and Israel as a nation? You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, I read a book, a big tome um, last year, and it was, a, it was basically the history of the, um, well, I was going to say history of Judaism. It really wasn't. It was the history of uh, anti-Semitism. And you do know, don't you, who has been in the forefront of all anti-Semitism. That's right. The Christian church. Um, Martin Luther, even, because uh, the Christian church blamed Israel for the crucifixion of Christ, uh, they didn't, they didn't, um, oh, they didn't permit mistreatment or they didn't sanction mistreatment of, of, of Jews. But um, they certainly tolerated it. They, they certainly allowed people to get away with it. Folks, um, that's something that should never be mentioned among us. There should never be a Christian who is an anti-Semite for lots of reasons. Um, but here's one. In Romans chapter 11, verse 12, they ought to be a major focus of concern and evangelism on the part of the Christian church. Uh, just based on what is said in verse 12 of Romans chapter 11. And that, that's one lesson that you get from this text. Now, here's another thing that I'd, I'd love to spend a whole lot of time on. I'm not sure we're going to have enough time, but I think another great lesson, folks, that grows out of this text um, is that the moment, here's the lesson, the moment that you think you've got God figured out, you come up against something like this. <laughs> let, let me explain. Guys, uh, if you can, real, fi- real fast, if you can find um, Isaiah 45. Um, we're going to have to kind of pick up the pace here, Jimmy. Um, Isaiah 45. Uh, in Isaiah 45, God announces something. Um, in verse 1 of Isaiah 45, he says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of the king, etc., etc. Et now, first of all, this is 150 years before Cyrus ever was born. All right? But notice in verse 4 what is said about Cyrus. For the sake of my servant Jacob, that is for Israel, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, that is Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. That is, God says, though you don't know me, I am naming you because I'm going to... Why am I doing that? Because I'm going to use you. You don't know me, and you're 150 years off in the future, and you don't know me savingly, but I'm going to use you. Why are you going to do that, God? Verse 6, that people may, may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now, guys, then you come to verse 7, which is a bombshell. He says, in, in explanation of using somebody that doesn't know him to accomplish his purposes, he says, 
I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Um, even those things which seem to be the very exact opposite of everything that you would have expected of God to do, you find him doing it. In, in the year 70, um, when the, the, the Romans swept in and destroyed Jerusalem and just wiped it off the face of the planet, it was, it was natural to conclude, well, you know, <laughs> that's the end of Jerusalem. That's the end of Israel. Yes, sir, that's, um, um, that, that's all she wrote for Israel. But not so fast. Why? Because, you see, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. Just when you think you've got everything figured out, uh, Babylon comes down and sweeps through Jerusalem. This is, of course, in, Isaiah, uh, in Jeremiah's day. Uh, destroys Jerusalem and drags everybody off captive. Just when you think, oh, well, that's it for Israel. God says, mm, I want to tell you about a man by the name of Cyrus. He doesn't even know me. He hasn't even been born and won't be born for another 150 years. But when Cyrus uh, shows up, then my people will be delivered. Just when you think you've got him figured out, he says to you, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I, I form light and I create darkness and uh, uh, I make well-being and I create calamity. I take Cyrus and use him to accomplish what I want. <laughs> you know, guys, um, I wonder how, we, how often we as Christians are guilty in the midst of a particular trouble or trial that we're in of asking some question like this. Why does God do this to me? Or um, if, if, if God is really a God of love, then, then why is this happening? Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Just because you can't see a good reason for God doing what He's doing doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because you can't see the good reason for God doing what He's up to or being being up to what He's up to doesn't mean there isn't a good reason because you've got to remember. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity for my own good purposes. Just when we think we've got Him figured out he raises up a Cyrus. You know, guys, um, um, one of the most discouraging things in my Christian life presently is the rapid ev- advance of evil and of evil men. Um, and, I mean, I, I'm not the only one that sees that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just rather distressing that there is so much evil. And, you know, guys, um, I shouldn't say this probably. Maybe, maybe they can X this off the tape. But I want you to know that sexual sin is alive and well. I know you're glad to hear that. But you know what? 
It ain't just sexual sin anymore. <laughs> it's perversion. Perversion. I mean, I can mention some things, but I won't. You know, it's it's one of the people that means a whole lot to me and my wife in, in, in our lives is a woman by the name of Virginia Schmidt. Virginia Schmidt is the woman that preached the gospel tonight. Both and I, both Susie and I became Christians out of Matthew chapter 7. And, and, and we developed such a sweet relationship with Virginia. But Virginia Schmidt said, um, um, every six months, it seems that we see another advance of sin. It takes on a, another dimension of black. But, but having said that, I just want you to know that we're not the first ones to have said that. We're not the first ones to have seen that. Elijah saw it. Back in, um, remember after that great victory that he had up on, the, on, on Mount Carmel against the, uh, the prophets of Baal, and then he's thinking everything's, uh, you know, fine. But then he turns around and guess what? Well, Ahab is still the king. Um, Baal worship is still recognized to be legitimate. And Jezebel is saying... You know, the gods do to me if I don't, if I don't kill you by tomorrow. And, and the, the point is, because of the, this incongruity between the visible, that is, oh, Ahab's still the king and Jezebel wants my hide and, and the prophets of Baal, although we kill 450 of them, Baal is still the dominant worship god in Israel. Because of the incongruity between the visible and what really is and the invisible that our God reigns Elijah says in 1 Kings 19 just kill me I want to die I look at the landscape of, of advancing evil and Jezebel's after me and Ahab is still the king and and I just had this great victory. I thought it was going to change. And now I've got to run for my life. He gets to wherever he gets in 40 days after he's running himself silly. And he, comes, he crawls up under a tree and he says, he says um, um, but he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. That's how God works. He forms light and He creates darkness. He makes well-being and He creates calamity. And just when you think you got it all figured out, raises up Osiris. Just when everyone thought Israel's done for, Paul says, no, no, no. It's going to be greater in their full inclusion. You know, guys, um, do you believe in that God? The God that, that perplexes and confounds the very people who love Him, who can't figure Him out. You remember the story in Luke chapter 2? Um, 
Remember the story in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was in the temple and you know, they, they went down for their Passover and, and they went off and they realized, you know, where's Jesus? We lost Jesus. You know, I got a boy and I ain't got him no more. And, um, and so they have to come back. Three days later, they find him. He's, he said, what's the matter with you all? I mean, did you not know I'd be about my father's business? And, and, the ta- and the story goes on to include a sentence like this. I'm not quoting it perfectly, but a sentence like this. And his mother and his father were confused. Yeah. That's what he does. Jesus perplexes and confuses the very ones who love him. Just when you think you got it all figured out, (laughs) he pulls something out of the hat. Completely unpredictable. Completely apart from how we thought it was going to play out. And you know what's remaining, ladies and gentlemen? God is going to do something with Israel. He's going to do something with Israel. (laughs) Just when you think, oh, there's not very many Jews that want to hear the gospel, God is going to pull something out. I I do one more thing and I'll quit. Guys, in in Paul's day, or maybe let's say in Jesus' day, you you had Israel... And then you have the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, those pagan dogs. You know? Who was more hopeless than them pagan dogs outside of Israel? But what what does God do? He takes Israel, sets her aside, And includes the Gentiles. The people with no hope. And turns her, Gentiles, into the church. Now one other thing to say and I'll quit. But ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this. I'm pretty convinced that we're living in a period very similar to that. Because who is more hopeless than all of those unbelieving people outside the church. Ladies and gentlemen, very honestly, I despair for the church. The biggest obstacle and opponent to the expansion of the gospel is the church. The ones who want to rewrite justification by faith. You know what I think may happen again? God's going to take the church and He's going to set her aside. And He's going to bring those people in who are now outside the church, who have no hope. And He's going to establish His righteousness among them. He did it once, He did it with Israel. And I wonder, is he about to do that again? You think about it. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that we bear your image. As marred and as darkened 
and as fractured as it may be, we are made in your image. And so is that neighbor who lives next door to us, who who we despise. And so is Israel. And I pray, Lord, that you will remind us of the great dignity and worth that comes in association with with recognizing you as our maker and the one whose image we bear. Remind us, Lord, that we don't have you figured out. And remind us that you are a God full of surprises, that you that you form light and you create darkness, and that you you create calamity for your own good purposes. Might we find ourselves oh so encouraged to realize that though we don't understand what you're up to, there is a very good reason for what you're up to. We, um, we yield before you, O oh God, knowing that you frequently confound and perplex the very people who love you. We love you, O oh Lord. We are sorry we love you so little. Grant us grace that we might love you more. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.